Okay, you can turn to your section on, uh, I hope this is working. Yeah. What am I taping it for? Uh, so we can have it as a backup here, and also I'm sending a, a copy of this tape to all the offices along with the material. They've been wanting to know about this lecture. So. All the other growing free lecture. Sure you are. You're going to be on tape. Oh, sure. So everything you say personal will be... Cannon, recorded we'll be used for against you. <laughs> <laughs> will be used against you. I will turn it off when we get to that point. <laughs> That's right. Okay, turn to your outline on growing free. And uh, not the article, but the outline. Okay. So let's start with the first one. How are we to deal with emotions? What have you learned so far about emotions? What are some of the truths that you've learned about emotions? That it's, um, it's okay to feel them, but they don't necessarily reflect what reality is. Okay, so it's okay to feel them. They are not the bearers of truth, not always. They are good indicators to, to you sometimes of what's going on. Okay, so they can be used as an indicator of a, a deeper problem. Mm-hmm. Are you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's running. Okay, I thought it would stop. <laughs> no, it's going. <laughs> okay. Everything Jeff. you say will be. <laughs> trying to look out for you. Jeff and Fondren says um, there's no real such thing as a bad or a negative emotion. Okay, so there are not good or bad. They just are either comfortable or uncomfortable. You don't need to write these all down yet. Don't write these down yet. I'll, Kathy, don't write all these down yet. I just want to talk about them. <laughs> Kathy, don't do that. <laughs> we have a silly group of ladies here. <laughs> But our only man isn't. <laughs> he's very, he's cool. Yeah. Out of he goes with the flow. That's all can do. Okay. Okay, you can, those are good. You can write these down. Number one, the emotions are not right or wrong. They are not right or wrong. Have you all seen this article? Do you have that in your material called Feelings uh, Are Not Facts? Why don't you turn to that? Has anybody gone over that with you yet? No. Okay. Well, for people who are uh, real subjective, uh, I'll sometimes go through this just to show them how deceptive feelings can be. Um, If we start and see at the... uh, little diagram in the middle, you were going from the right feelings, going to action, going to faith, and going to fact. So we're going to go from right to left as I read the top. I feel unloved, unacceptable, and unworthy. Because I feel this way, I act as if I am unloved, unacceptable, and unworthy. And because I both feel and act this way, I believe that I am not loved, not acceptable, and not worthy. And because I feel and act and believe this way, I make it a fact by saying I am unloved, unacceptable, and unworthy. So we turn our emotions and our feelings into thoughts of, uh, tr- of fact, rather. How do I do this? How is it possible to change feelings into facts? It is accomplished by allowing feelings to be bearers of truth. You see, feelings either are or they are not. They are experienced or they are not. They are present, but they are never true or false. 
Thoughts alone possess the quality of truthfulness or falseness. So if feelings tell lies about us, they do so because of an incorrect or deceptive thought is attached to them. The deception is accomplished, accomplished by the thought, not the feeling. And so the truth would be, with that idea in mind, then the way to control feelings, which I don't like the word control, but the way to function is by controlling the thoughts, to base the thoughts upon solid fact. I don't like to encourage people to try to control their feelings through their mind. They should believe fact regardless of what their feelings do. Their feelings usually will follow. But if we become obsessed with trying to change our feelings, then we're con we're concentrating on the feelings instead of concentrating on the truth, letting God be responsible for the feelings. It is a fact I am loved by God who sent his son to die for me. Because of this fact that God loves me, I choose to believe the word of God is true. And because of this fact and my belief in its truth, I can act as if it is true for me. And since my thoughts control how I will respond, uh, to feelings, I will keep my thoughts upon God's truth and will recognize that my feelings are not facts, and therefore I don't have to treat them as if they are. By understanding this idea and having a firm knowledge of who I am in Christ, a person can stop being controlled by feelings. So this is a paper that you can use with people who are real subjective. Um, the other thing I like to use is a definition of truth. Do you remember what that is? Truth is... Yeah. Truth is whatever God says, regardless of how you feel. And like the woman this morning, I wrote that down for her to carry in her Bible. She's extremely subjective. And uh, people who are so subjective have a real struggle because to them, their feelings are reality. And uh, it'll be easy for them to believe God's word when they feel it. That's the, that's the belief they have. How can it be true when I don't feel it? And so their struggle is to choose to believe what God says, regardless of what they feel. How would you deal with a person who is not necessarily a, a Christian or doesn't take the Bible as being the authority, uh, but has some concept of fact and, and reality in, their, in, that, in that sphere of thinking? How do you deal with well, I guess the issue is going to be what determines what is truth for them. What is truth? What they think or what they make up or what they want to believe or what somebody tells them or what is their yardstick that they use for reality? And without it being a Christian and not believing the Bible, that's pretty hard. You know, what do they have? What is their yardstick? And it's usually just whatever they choose to believe in their own mind. They don't really have a yardstick unless they're from another religion that has a yardstick or of, of their Koran or whatever they're using. But uh, So then gets the issue, what are they going to believe? I mean, it's the same thing for everybody to teach them to, to believe truth as opposed to believing feelings. But what is truth for them? And you have to deal with that issue. So you just, you, you just make it from whatever point, wherever they are in their concept of truth. Of course, I would have a hard time counseling a person who didn't believe in God's word and teach them that they should put their mind on something that wasn't true, that I don't believe. You know, they uh, might believe the truth is that they're a rotten person. And they feel rotten. 
But that's the truth. I am a rotten person. Well, how are you going to, without God's Word, how are you going to convince them they're not a rotten person? How are you going to show them what, what truth is? So, it's difficult with people who are not saved. Okay, then secondly, uh, about dealing with emotions, uh, accept them. Don't be ashamed of our feelings. We need to accept our feelings and not to be ashamed of them. And uh, <clears throat> thirdly, we need to face them and be willing to share them. That kind of goes with the second one of not being ashamed, but we need to be, need to be willing to face our feelings, to admit our feelings and uh, acknowledge them and be willing to share our feelings. And then fourthly, uh, <clears throat> they are indicators of a deeper issue. They are indicators of deeper issues. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. And fifth, you can't change your feelings directly. You can change your thoughts, which may result in a change in your feelings, but you cannot, by your effort, change how you feel. So you can't change your feelings. A lot of people feel guilty for the way they feel, don't they? They condemn themselves. They think, I shouldn't feel that way. They feel it's a sin to feel a certain way. Well, if, you cannot be, if you're not responsible for the feelings you have, how can you then, how can it be a sin? You don't choose to feel a certain way. You just feel. You don't choose to feel happy. You don't choose to feel sad. You don't choose to feel angry. You don't choose to... Those are just emotions. You can choose your beliefs and you can choose your attitudes, but you can't choose what you feel your emotions. And then lastly, we don't want, number six, we don't want to be controlled by them. <clears throat> we don't want to be controlled by them. read you something that uh, was a real encouragement to me a few years ago and uh, as a result of this I wrote a paper that you have a copy of and we don't need to turn to that right now you can read it later on fear but here's Paul and this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 1 following when he says and when I came to you brethren I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God for I determined to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. You ever been afraid enough that you trembled? You know what that kind of fear is like? To have a panic attack? To be so afraid that you're shaking? Now, I learned a lot from reading that. First of all, Paul was not ashamed of his emotions. He was willing to put it in the Word of God. He was willing to write it in the letter. And we say, follow me. Paul says, follow me like I follow Christ. Was he a godly man? Yeah. And yet, he felt afraid. He felt fear. And uh, he was not ashamed of his feelings. He was willing to face them. He was willing to admit he had them. 
he was willing to share it with you and tell you that he felt and tell the people in Corinth that he felt afraid. So as I began to think about that, I began to see that there are different ways of responding to the thing called fear. And one of the ways of responding is that I feel afraid. This would be number one. I feel afraid. And then we say to ourselves, therefore, I am afraid. And my action as a result of those emotions might be stay home. Now, that Paul didn't do. He could have said, well, I didn't come because I was afraid and I had a lot of fear and trembling, so I stayed home. No, he said, I came to you in fear and trembling and say I stayed home. So he did not let his fear control him. Now, secondly, a second approach a person might take is say, well, I feel afraid. So under a feel, I feel afraid and I am afraid because I feel afraid, therefore I am afraid, but I'll go. See, now we could say, well, there's Paul. He went. Uh, He just uh, stuffed his hands in his pocket, gritted his teeth, and determined that he wasn't going to stay home. I'm not going to let this fear control me. I am going to go. Well, that would have been self-effort. That would have been self-determination of trying to overcome his fear in the flesh. Now, he would have gone, and the result might have looked great to the world, but he has nothing to do with faith in that. He's just determined in his own self-effort that he's going to go. And I don't think that's what Paul did. I believe Paul did this. I feel afraid. But what did he say to Timothy? Remember what he said to Timothy about fear? fear. There's no fear in we do not have a spirit of fear. I am not afraid. Now that seems like a ridiculous contradiction to the world. <clears throat> because the world says I am what I feel. If I feel afraid, I am afraid. But Paul said, oh, no, 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 this is my identity. And I do not have a spirit of fear. Even though I have emotions of fear, I do not have a spirit of fear. So I will go <clears throat> out of the reality of who I am in Christ, knowing that I am not afraid because I have, I am in Him. I am in Christ. He is in me. And by faith, I will put my confidence in Christ who is my life. And I will go with my confidence in Him being my life even though I feel afraid. Now, a subjective person might say, well, I'll wait, I'll put my confidence in Christ as my life so that my feelings will change and then when I don't feel afraid anymore, I'll go. No. See, that's what we want to do. Well, if I pray this prayer, if I have enough faith, I won't feel afraid anymore. So if I just had enough faith, I could get my feelings to change and then I wouldn't feel afraid and then I'll go. No. I feel afraid, but I'm not afraid. My confidence is in Christ and I will go. And my feelings have nothing to do with my faith. This truth about myself has to do with my faith. I am not afraid. And this is what will get us to go in, even though he went in, in, with fear. And then he says that he understood the reason why and he said... Uh, in my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of spirit and power, 
that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And that's often my prayer when I do conferences, and I pray that people will come away impressed with the message and not the messenger, that they won't be impressed with how elegant a speaker I am or whatever, but they would be impressed with the Word of God. And I think that's what Paul said here, is that he came in fear and trembling, and he was weak, and he wasn't persuasive, and he wasn't any excellent orator, but so that they would not be impressed with him, but they would be impressed with the word that he was saying and the power in that. The, the fact that he, he called, and Paul also said he gloried his weakness, that's not, he's not really talking about his identity. The weakness, situation. the weak, my weakness of my flesh, the weakness okay. of my self-ability apart from God, the weakness of my ability to do anything apart from God. That's what he gloried in. So that he could experience the strength of God in him. Okay. Um, next, I want to share this ABC theory with you. Have any questions on issue of feelings? You know, it's such, a, it's such a big issue, I think, in the church because so many Christians grow up feeling like believing and being taught that I shouldn't feel, I shouldn't feel anger, I shouldn't feel fear. And so I stuff all that stuff. And I never deal with it. And I try not to live with any feelings of anger or any feelings of fear rather than seeing that there are opportunities, that they're there for a purpose. Now, let's talk about that a little bit before I go into the ABC in the terms of being an indicator of deeper issues. Um, if you're driving a car and the oil light comes on in the car, let's say the oil light is your anger. Okay, Most Christians are taught to take a hammer and break the light. Right? Not supposed to have it. <laughs> Not supposed to have anger, so get rid of it. See? Just stop your feeling of anger. And so, whoop, it's gone now, so I'm okay. I don't have the anger anymore. When your oil light comes on, what do you say? You don't say, oh, i got a problem with my oil light. No, you say, i got a problem in my engine. That's an indicator. When you feel anger, there's a purpose for that feeling. It means you have a problem, but it's not the emotion of anger. There is a problem, and the problem is in you. Well, here's what happens. Let's take the A, B, C. A, B, and C. A is uh, circumstance. So let's say you're counseling somebody and that's their husband's behavior that uh, he uh, never shares with me or he gets angry. Maybe my husband's anger or maybe uh, they come in and they're all upset because uh, um, their husband didn't listen to them and was insensitive to them. Okay? And C is their reaction to that. So their reaction to their husband's being insensitive in this situation was hurt. Now we had one this morning we talked to who I had shared this with earlier. I'm sharing with you here. And she went home and she had a situation with her husband during the week. And God brought this back to her mind and she remembered 
this and it began to make sense what was happening. And in that situation, um, he uh, didn't understand her. She felt misunderstood by him. And so she got hurt. Now, oftentimes, then maybe we get angry. And so we have hurt and we have anger and our reaction. Now, let's say, let's use something that's even more significant and, and say that uh, somebody is just really rude, like your your uh, mate or your girlfriend or whoever is just really hurtful to you, does something that, that's hurtful. Well, what we tend to do is we tend to draw a line from C to A and we tend to blame A for our reactions. You ever heard anyone say, he makes me so mad? Did you know you can't make anyone mad? Nobody can make you mad. You choose to be mad or you're mad because of another issue, but nobody can make you mad. Two people can go up to the same person and the person will do the same thing and one gets mad and one doesn't get mad. So they can't make you mad. There's something else that causes us to react that way. What this is doing is it's creating a situation of irresponsibility. This is where most people are in the world. Most people hold other people responsible for their reactions, for their happiness, for their unhappiness. And when they're angry, when they're hurt, when they're upset, they blame the other person's behavior. And you'll get a statement like, well, wouldn't you be too? You'll get that from your counselor. Wouldn't you have been angry? Wouldn't you have been upset by what they did? Because it takes the responsibility off of them by blaming somebody else. Where the truth is, and this is the lie, the truth is, is that that circumstance gets filtered through a belief. That's what the B is, a belief that results in a reaction. The circumstance gets filtered through a belief that results in a reaction. So the problem is not the circumstance. The problem isn't the other person's behavior. It's their problem. But that's not our problem in terms of our reaction. The reason we're reacting the way we are is because we have a belief in there that's creating that reaction. That belief could be a, just an irrational belief Or it could be a, a right that we're holding on to. I have a right not to be treated that way. Somebody cuts you off in traffic and you get angry at them. They treated you disrespectfully. I have a right to be treated respectfully. I have a right to not be cut off in traffic. And so we carry rights along and that's why we react or we have irrational beliefs that is terrible and horrible, like that woman is terrible and horrible for my husband to misunderstand me. I feel not cared about when that happens. And therefore, when my husband treats me that way, I'm not loved. And I think that was the bottom line for her. I'm not loved. My husband doesn't love me. Nobody loves me. And so she reacts in hurt over it. So if we want to grow free, by growing free, we're talking about growing free emotionally in, the, in our reactions to, to, to life. 
You see, we can live our life by putting our minds on truth and just believing truth and acting on the truth and just not being controlled by those feelings. But that isn't total freedom until we begin to change and be growing free emotionally from the reaction to all these things around us. I believe God wants to give us more freedom than just to act upon truth but to be able to be free emotionally inside. And that's a process. I believe what happens to us is that we come into this world as Christians. We get saved and come into the Christian world. And as we grow as Christians, we end up with two sets of beliefs. We have this new set of beliefs that we're learning. And so that's that's the conscious. We're putting our mind on all these truths. But back here, in our subconscious or unconscious mind, we have these beliefs that we carry around in our brains that get triggered by circumstances. Maybe it's terrible and horrible to be rejected by somebody. And if that belief is really strong, it will control me when I get into a situation where I'm threatened by being about being rejected. And I'll react to it. And I'll think, well, why am I reacting that way? I'm putting my mind, Christ is my life, I'm surrendering my life, I've given up all my rights, I don't understand why I'm reacting this way. I had a man who uh, I counseled and took him all the way through counseling and he did real fine. He came back two years later with severe depression. And he was setting his mind on truth and he was surrendering and he didn't know of any rights that he saw that he was holding on to and, and yet he was severely depressed. And I took him through some of the things that we're going to do here in the testing to see because what was happening is he was reacting to his circumstances of life because he had some beliefs that were extremely strong and that came out in some of the things that we did. And when he began to see those wrong beliefs, he could do something about them. And so part of the process of growing free is for God to reveal the lies that we carry. And that's a process. Sometimes you see them right away. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes it's later when you do. To grow free emotionally, we have to, I believe, number one, own responsibility for our reactions. That means not to blame somebody else for the way that we're reacting if I'm miserable, if I'm angry, if I'm hurt, to realize I can't blame anyone else for how I'm reacting. Then secondly, to realize that my reactions are an indicator of a belief or a right that I'm holding on to. And then thirdly, ask God why. Why am I reacting this way, Lord? What is it? Oh, I know my husband's behavior stinks, but why am I reacting this way to it? Why am I so upset? And I can't say, well, wouldn't anyone be? No. Why am I? What is there in me that's causing me to react to my husband's behavior the way I'm reacting? Now, it's normal to feel hurt over certain things. But I'm talking about behavior that is unreasonable, that, that is irrational, that is bent. I mean, I'm just really suffering and, and totally upset and I can't function and, and I'm so angry over this thing. And why is it bothering me so? 
God taught me this with a situation with my wife about two years after I was here. And uh, we had a problem with our air conditioner. I don't think I shared this with you. If I have, you can stop me. But but uh, she called me here at the office in the summer and one day and I was up in Tom's office and she said, our air conditioner isn't working and the house is really hot. What should I do? And I said, well, I don't know anyone. I should just take the yellow pages and find somebody and give them a call and have them come out. So she did. And I hung up and Tom asked me what that was about and I told him and uh, I got through telling him. He says, well, I have a friend who's in the air conditioning business and I'm sure he'd be happy to help you. So he gave me his name and telephone number and I called Donna back, but she'd already made arrangements for this guy to come. So he came out and worked on the air conditioner. I went home that night and the house was just beastly hot. I mean, it was like in the 90s. And uh, she, I said, what do you do? Well, he put a new uh, filter in, in, the, in the air conditioner, just a regular filter in the furnace. And, and then he put some Freon in the line. And that was it. Well, the next day the house was still hot and there, was no, there wasn't any cool air coming out of those vents. And so I said, well, this thing doesn't seem to be working and I think you better call him back and have him come back out and check it. So she called him and three days later he gets out. Well, it was just miserable all those three days and my air conditioning compressor never stopped running. It would, it would run and kick off and come right back on and the thing was just, we had a bill that month of $300 for electric, for air conditioning. So he comes back out and he walks around and he feels the register. I wasn't there. She said he just went around and felt the register and says, that's cool air coming out of there. And he left. So I called this friend of Tom's and he came out and found out that the guy got water in the line when he put the Freon in and it was freezing and thawing. So he put a filter in the line and uh, I went home that night and gee, it was not too bad. It was getting a little cooler. So I went to bed and I got up in the morning and it felt pretty cool. So I went downstairs and said, Donna, boy, isn't it nice and cool? And she says, well, I don't think it's that cool. And I looked at her and I says, well, how cool does it have to be for you to be happy? And I was angry. And I turned around and went upstairs to my study and I sat down. Well, normally the Holy Spirit would have just convicted me that of being nasty to my wife and I'd have gone back and apologized. But I did something that morning I'd never done. I said, God, why? Why did I get so upset? Why did that bother me? And I think it was because my wife hadn't done anything wrong. If she had done something, if she had treated me horribly, then I would have had this excuse. You see, I could have blamed her for my reaction. And even though God would have shown me my reaction was wrong and I'm going to apologize for it, I wouldn't have learned. And I said, God, why? And he said, because you wanted to be important. You wanted Your guy had fixed it and hers hadn't. And you wanted your wife to appreciate that. And uh, so you wanted to be right. And I began to see that I had to develop a lifestyle of superiority of having to be right at everything. And I said, well, God, why did I need to be right? He says, because you want to be important. And then he said that morning, I can, I can remember, it was just in my mind, and he said, Jim, isn't being important to me enough? Isn't being important to me enough? Do you have to be important to everyone else too? And I began to see that morning what I'd done to my family and to my kids and how I'd always corrected them and I always had to be right, and I always had to have the answer. And they felt about two inches tall. And so I had to deal with, and God led me to deal with that with my kids and my wife. But I learned something that morning through that. To take responsibility for my reactions, not to blame other people for my reactions, and rather than being introspective of trying to figure out why I'm reacting that way, to ask God to show me. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. 
Sometimes it's later. So that's the ABC theory. And uh, the other one you have on there is the Rafa theory. And it's basically the same thing, a little bit different. Do you all know who Rafa is and what Rafa is? Is there anybody who doesn't know? Okay, Rafa is a Christian inpatient, primarily an inpatient uh, Christian psychiatric facility is how it began. Uh, but is based on a book called Search for Significance by Dr. McGee, Robert McGee, and uh, I don't know if you've all read that. If you have not read it, please put it on your reading list. You're all ought to read it and have a copy of it to use. I use it a lot in counseling. Search for Significance. There's a copy up there on the shelf. And the newer versions have a little workbook at the back of it as part of it. Um... They are also doing outpatient counseling now, also in addition. But it's one of the few uh, Christian inpatient facilities. That uh, and there depends on which counselor you get. But the counselors who have who are doing what they desire for them to do are using the approach of search for significance as their primary method of counseling. And everybody who's in the inpatient program goes through that workbook and, and studies that. But theirs is the same type of thing. Uh, you start with circumstances. Which get filtered through beliefs. Which produce thoughts. Which lead to feelings. Which lead to behavior. And what happens is that people become aware of their feelings and their behavior problems, but they tend to blame the circumstances for their feelings and their behavior, rather than realizing that their feelings and behavior come from the beliefs and the thoughts that they have about those beliefs. And the real issue is their beliefs. Well, what we're going to do the rest of today and most of tomorrow is I want to share with you some different tools that you can use to help identify and to, to help uh, discover beliefs. And uh, because I want you all to share uh, with each other the results, uh, I'm not going to use the tape recorder except to turn on maybe when I get into early memories and kind of share with you when I share how to, how to do that. The uh, next one is uh, B, which is A is better than B. And uh, when you do this with the counselee, if you want to use it, you just have them brainstorm as fast as they can. Put down a whatever they can think of, like rich is better than poor, uh, clean is better than dirty, whatever comes to their mind. This is better than that. And just list them as fast as they can. Not evaluate them, not think about them, just list then they need to go back on them and ask themselves, which of these do I really believe? And which of these do I think affects my behavior? Some of these I may have just learned from society. And they may not be big beliefs in me, maybe just something that came out of my mind that I learned and may not really be controlling. But oftentimes, supposedly, if they go do through doing this, they'll come across a few of those that 
ooh, I didn't realize that that was in there. And uh, I bet that's a big, big issue for me. My sister is better than me, or whatever. I have never used it, as I said, so I don't know how effective it is. Um, the next one is uh, the belief system test. Did you all get a chance to work on that? Okay. In the uh, beliefs inventory, there's also a page called Irrational Ideas by uh, Albert Ellis, and they kind of go together on the results of it. And normally I look on here, if you have uh, probably a score of seven or higher, it's pretty significant. And obviously, the higher the number, the more significant that belief is in controlling you. So this is on the back last page of that belief systems inventory that you took. So let's just spend a few minutes and go through and, and have you share what you came up with and see what, whether there are some issues uh, for any of you. Okay, yesterday we uh, went through the uh, tests on childhood messages and shared a better A is better than B, a belief system tests, and the search for significance tests. And of those, the one that I am more apt to use, as I shared yesterday, is that search for significance test. I just find it to be more accurate than the others, although the belief systems inventory can also be good. I've never used the first two. Um, the one that I use the most often uh, is early memories, number D. And we're going to do some early memories today. Let me share with you, and it's all written out for you. I just want you to follow along about how we take early memories. Uh, with your counselee, you ask them to think back before the age of nine, if they can, uh, as early as they can. So what you just say is, I want you to think back to as early as you can. I want you to think of a specific memory. It has to be a specific thing at a point in time. It can't be, well, we used to go to the zoo on Sunday. That's not a specific memory. One Sunday going to the zoo, I got lost. That's a specific memory. It has to be a specific thing at a point in time. It can't be a general thing. And then have them come up with three to five memories. Um, today we're only going to be able to do three because we're not going to have time. <clears throat> what determines how many I do depends on how similar they are. If there, I begin to see a similarity in three of them, I probably won't go any farther. If I don't really see a strong similarity in the three, I'll do a couple more so that I can find a pattern. And then when they give you a memory, just write down what they tell you. Now, you do this real fast. You don't spend any time on it. So tell me your memory, and you just describe it. And I don't ask a lot of questions. You just tell me about it, and it's usually you don't go into a lot of detail. You just kind of tell me basically what happened, and I take notes on it. I don't write down verbatim, but I take notes about it. Then I say, okay, I want you to take a snapshot of that memory with a Polaroid camera. With a Polaroid camera, I want you to take a snapshot of that memory and then describe the picture to me. Tell me everything that's in the picture. I want to know who's in the picture and what they're doing and what the background is like and, you know, just everything that's in that picture. What are the people doing? What kind of expressions do they have on their face? Faces, if they're more than one person. So just describe everything about that, and you're going to write that down. And then next, their feelings. So they take a snapshot, they describe the snapshot, and then feelings. What kind of feelings are there in the snapshot? 
Or what kind of feelings are you experiencing looking at the snapshot? It could be either one. But what kind of feelings are there relative to that snapshot? And so just write down feeling words. And then just have them give you some feeling words regarding that. And then the hardest one is seven. Now I want you to write and give me a newspaper headline for that picture. I want you to tell the story behind the story. Now obviously if a little boy is sitting at a table playing with a toy, you, the headline wouldn't be little boy sits at a table playing with toy. I mean you can see that. What's significant about the little boy sitting at the table playing with a toy? You know, maybe the headline is Tom gets it, Tom is delighted at the gift he got from mom or something like that. Whatever whatever the story is behind behind that picture. Why is that picture significant? So that's how you do it. You, and you take the one. You just go bang, bang, bang down, and then you go to the now give me another memory. And you just go right down. You don't ask, I don't ask a lot of questions. I just have them give the information, write it down, and then go to the next memory. So you should be able to do three memories in a half an hour to 45 minutes at the most, at the very most. It doesn't take long to do them. If you start discussing them and taking a lot of time thinking about it, you want them just to come up with what's on, the, on their mind. The theory behind this is that of the thousands of memories that you could have recalled, why do you think that these were so important? Why do you think that of all the thousands of memories you could have remembered, you remembered those? And the theory is, is that they're important because they reflect your beliefs. Now, they say they're, they're not important because they caused your belief, they reflect your belief. They may have also helped to cause it too, I'm sure, but they reflect it. So they say that even if you can't remember anything before the age of nine, make one up. Because if you make a memory up, and make a story up, it'll reflect your belief. I've never tried that because I've never had anybody that couldn't remember something before the age of nine. If you took the age of three or four, they may not be able to, but the age of nine, usually they can remember something back then. And uh, it is a picture of how you see yourself and you see others today. The memory will reflect how you, your belief about how you see yourself and other people. After you get the memories done, whether it's three or five or however many, then you want to have help the person and you go through a process of evaluating them. And you look for commonalities. So you get them to tell you the common threads. Look at all of them, line them up. And you look at the emotions. Are there any common threads? Maybe three out of the five were, were happy. Maybe four out of the five. Maybe all three, if you got all three that were sad, maybe all three had something happening to him that was painful. Well, I wouldn't go any farther than three. I got three. And they're all painful things happening. And if something painful is happening, what are the other people doing? Is he being rescued? Is he being helped? Is there nobody else? Is he alone? All those things become significant. So you're looking for, and it gives you some examples there, happy or sad. Uh, what do you think is so, ask him, what do you think is so significant about this memory and about these memories? Are you scared or safe, alone or together? Uh, detached or linked. Detached means <clears throat> maybe you're in the picture, but you're always standing back watching others do things, or maybe you're not in any of the pictures. Maybe the pictures are always, there are memories of you, but you don't have you in them. That can be significant. Why? Why aren't you in any of the pictures? 
Uh, are you an observer or a participant in what's going on? Are you a talker or a listener? Are you in control or out of control? Are you failing or succeeding? If in every one you're failing, if every one you're doing bad, and I've had I've had memories that were every one of them, or maybe three out of the four, they were bad, and they were being punished for that. Well, that reflects their belief about life, doesn't it? That I am bad, and I get into trouble, and the world is painful. And so, anyway, you go through that process, mainly looking at the emotions, looking at the feelings, looking to see if some of those things are listed there, see if there are some common threads. And then after you do those, list those common threads, then have them fill in uh, the key words in those sentences. The world is blank. Others are blank. I am blank. I will never blank. Therefore, I must always. Life is, and I will have more value if. And have them fill them in based upon those common words and things you listed. Based upon those memories and the common threads. Thinking about that, now fill that in and see what you come up with. Now, let me share with you a little bit about my experience of this. When they, I did this 11 years ago, when I went through the internship, and uh, it was probably one of the most life-changing things for me, the whole internship, apart from forgiving my dad. Um, and it wasn't that I had a common thread that ran between them. Uh, that wasn't. There was some commonality, but that wasn't the issue. I had one memory in which I was in kindergarten and the whole class had to stay after for something. It was my sister's birthday and she was going to have a birthday party. And I was afraid I was going to miss her birthday party and because I didn't know how long the class was going to be staying after. And that was my memory, that I had this fear of missing her birthday party. Well, then they said, take a picture, take a snapshot. Well, you think I'd take a snapshot of the class or the teacher? The snap, my snapshot was me running down the street with tears streaming down my cheek, down this street, just petrified. My emotions were fear, panic, and my headline was, Jim will miss out. And when I, <laughs> even seeing it now, I mean, that is, that was my belief that ran my life. That belief controlled my whole life, all my life. And when I wrote that down, I started to cry. I never even realized that. And, and my whole life made sense. I realized why I was so homesick when I was in, went to camp. I was so homesick because I was afraid something would happen at home. It wasn't that I missed my parents. I was afraid something would happen and I'd miss out on it. When I studied, I never could understand why I couldn't study in my room alone. I ought to always study down with the family in front of the television set to live in a way trying to be sure I didn't miss out wherever it was whether it was a line that was going to form uh, for tickets I'd have to make sure I wasn't at the end of the line because I was sure by the time I got there there wouldn't be any tickets left and I'd miss out whatever it is I would miss out and I'll I can't explain to you the feeling I had when that it was like a light went on and it was like my whole life passed in front of me and all of a sudden made sense and I saw that and, uh, I mean, it was, it was eye-opening. Now, it doesn't happen with everybody who you do early memories with. And mine was not the commonality, and mine was not filling in this belief system. It was one memory. 
With other people, it's the common thread that they see. With others, it's filling in this. With others, it's not significant at all. So for some of you in doing this, you may come up with something that's significant for you. You may have a memory that comes back that you realize just from that. It wasn't even the memory, it was my headline. It was the headline that, that did it for me. Uh, with other, so with others of you, it may not be significant at all. So it doesn't need to be. But I want you to learn how to do it. It's also a fun way to start histories. Uh, I've done, I've used this at the start of histories and taken three or four early memories and I haven't gone through the process of evaluating them. I'll take them all the way down to the headlines and, and just to get their minds focused on the past and just begin to see because you can see and then you can go back to those later if you want to before you finish their history to try to help them see, what, have them come up with what kind of belief do you think you have about life and how has that belief controlled you. So what we're going to do is we're going to split up and uh, who hasn't been together? You two and you two and you two been together, haven't you? Have you two been together? Mm -hmm. How are we gonna do this? There. For those who haven't been together, <laughs> go find yourself a room, take a pad of paper, and uh, take about try to take about 20 minutes. See if you can do it in 15 to 20 minutes. And do it on one. Take three memories, evaluate them, and then fill in that belief system and then switch roles and, and go to the other one and go through that and then we'll come back here. So most of today is going to be doing that. <laughs>